Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Shadows at the Door, the podcast. I'm Mark Nixon, and each episode, David Alt and I will be featuring a ghost story and then discussing its themes and ideas. The stories will be both old and new, adaptations of classics, both well-known and not so much, and original works for the podcast. David and I are great lovers of the M.R. James-style ghost story, or pleasing terrors as they were also known. These were ghost stories in which atmosphere and dread were built into a horrifying conclusion. As such, we're champions of what we call quiet horror, finding that this is when horror is really at its best. We hope that through this podcast, you'll be encouraged to delve more into this realm of fiction. Now, tonight's story is entitled, Leave a Light On For Me, and is actually one of my own. It concerns a young university professor a lost archaeological find, and the very best of British hospitality. So, gather round the fire, pour yourself some tea, and we'll begin. I accept that there may be things far grander and more incomprehensible than I can possibly imagine. Indeed, whenever I have gazed up at the Milky Way, there has always been a feeling in my chest of something greater than my mortal life. Equally, however, when I gaze into the dark of an empty hallway or across a field in the dead of night, I sense something looking back. The very idea of the supernatural is nonsensical, it's devoid of sensible meaning, and yet... Complex, seemingly impossible things are, by their very nature, difficult to explain. I myself struggle to explain what I have witnessed. 
Perhaps I should elaborate. The matter began, as far as I'm concerned, quite mundanely. I had just finished interviewing that year's applications to Warwick and found myself in the midst of an academic wanderlust. It had been some years since my last publication, and despite my short time lecturing at Warwick, I feared I was beginning to stagnate. As luck would have it, or indeed something quite opposite to luck, an email presented itself to me having been forwarded from colleague to colleague over the course of some weeks. There was, it seemed, a potentially significant discovery in Northumberland, and the finder, a local priest, was keen to pass the relic on for study. Two days later, I found myself on a train heading north. It was November, but I remember as I reached Northumberland the sun was still visible well into the evening. With rolling hills as far as the eye could see, the sun lingered and illuminated my journey for as long as it could. Eventually the land was plunged into darkness, and with Uber seemingly unheard of this far north, I was forced to take a bus to my hotel in the coastal town of Anworth. Granted, I arrived late in the evening, but the town initially struck me as unremarkable, offering little but a selection of shops surrounded by a stream and headed off with an aging medieval castle. I soon learnt that Anworth was to many a place to retire, while for others it was simply a place to forget. Opposite the castle stood my destination, the Cherry Tree Hotel. Three stars on TripAdvisor, mind you, but it was quite literally the only hotel within walking distance. The red brickwork that peaked under the crawling ivy betrayed the building's age, and inside the 1970s was still very much present despite what contemporary fashions would impose upon it. As I awaited service, I saw that merely eight of the twenty rooms were booked, including my own. And, oh yes, upon closer inspection I saw that they'd somehow managed to misspell Troughton. The next morning I succumbed to hunger, and perhaps an element of laziness, and attended the hotel's restaurant for breakfast. The numbers present did not match those in the guest book, so I was left to assume that the cherry tree was the social hub of the local community. Indeed, when I eventually found a vacant table, I couldn't help but tune into the conversations around me. And it soon became apparent that everyone knew everybody. I seemed to draw a few looks, and offered a polite smile here and there. I wasn't the only passing visitor, but I was the only one eating alone. Or perhaps it was the tweed that drew their gaze. Before long, I accidentally met the eyes of the hotel manager, who promptly came striding over, armed with a jug of luminous orange juice. Morning, Squire. Ah, uh, good morning. And a fine one it is. Freshen your juice? Ah, uh, no, I'm okay. Ah, thanks. Something wrong with your breakfast? I'm sorry? Your breakfast. You've been shuffling that sausage around for five minutes now. Oh, oh it, it's, it's fine, thank you. It, it's just not what I'm used to. What? I don't do a full English in um, Coventry, was it? Uh, yes, uh, but no, I, I normally have something a, a lot lighter back home. Uh -huh. Any nice plans for today, then? Stroll on the beach? No. Wait, let me guess. You're here for the castle. Uh, sadly, no. As a matter of fact, I'm to meet a Father Gorman a little later. I'll be... Father Gorman? Yes, Father Simon Gorman. He does live in Anworth, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, he certainly does. He doesn't show his face a lot these days, though. Hasn't been so much as a Sunday service in weeks. 
Hmm, curious. He seemed rather eager to speak to someone from the university. Ah, the young fool reckons he's found old Edgar's lantern, doesn't he? I beg your pardon? Come on, why else would you be meeting him? Ah, I've been invited to inspect and collect an object of potential academic interest. I know little more than that, and honestly, I don't care to speculate further. Of course, Doctor. I meant nothing by it. <sighs> Professor. And please excuse me, I must gather my things. Lovely breakfast, really was. Less than twelve hours in Anworth, and I was already at the centre of local gossip. The manager had been strongly in favour of this room, although lacking a sea view as I'd requested, it did overlook the castle, which currently blocked the low winter sun from blinding me entirely. Nothing else in the room was remarkable, save for a rather tall cupboard and an armchair by the foot of the bed. The cleaner had apparently already been in while I was attending to breakfast, as my satchel hung neatly on the bedpost ready for collection. Poking out from it, however, was something new. Placed rather conspicuously was an old, tattered book, cloth-bound but with half the spine missing and the rest withered down to mere threads. I had to open the thing to discover the title. On Ghosts and Ghouls of the Northeast. <laughs> Good Lord, what rubbish. The Poppy Girl, Jimmy Allen, a grey lady. Oh, our original. Uh, oh. Old Edgar's Lantern. Surely this was no coincidence. With some condescension, I disregarded the book, keen to meet with the priest without all this nonsense to cloud my mind. I did half look for the manager on my way out, for the book could have easily been mistaken for my own by the cleaner, but I was convinced there was no literature in the room when I checked in. At night I had failed to spot the daffodils that surrounded the base of the castle, same of the hanging flower baskets from the lampposts. Most shops had a bowl of water on the step for passing dogs, and I confess to feeling somewhat charmed by the place. And although I couldn't see the ocean for the buildings, I could certainly smell the salt in the air and could feel my lungs cleanse of city smog. Despite my slow amble, I still had half an hour or so before my appointment, but decided to head to the church nonetheless. I pushed the wooden gate against the gravel and walked up the path to the church door. Surrounded by tombstones, I noted the salty air has long since eroded the majority of decoration and text of each stone. In fact, those most exposed were completely eroded, so the patterns on them strongly resembled the acoustic foam you see in recording studios. Arriving at the wooden door, I knocked just in case Father Gorman was as early as I. Nothing. Perhaps it was the gaze of passing villagers that spurred me, for I was keen to get inside the church, and so I tried the door. To my surprise, it was unlocked and revealed a dark and empty church hall within. Hello? Hello? As I entered, the cold swept over me like a blanket in the breeze. In the thin beams of light that pierced the old stained glass window, I saw dust dance in the new draught. The church pews were also rather caked in the stuff, leaving me certain that nobody had set foot in here for some time.
Behind the somewhat humble altar across the hall, I spotted a door locked with a padlock. At that moment, I saw a shadow behind me in the reflections of my spectacles, and I quickly turned around to spot the figure of a man in the doorway. Oh, uh, Father Gorman, is it? Uh, pleased to meet you. Yes, that's me. You must be Professor Troughton. That I am. Please, you must forgive me for intruding. Think nothing of it. As we shook hands, Gorman offered me a smile that was completely lacking in warmth. Were it not for lips curling on his unshaven face, I would declare the man completely without expression. Shall we get to the task at hand? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. This way, please. So, is the church closed these days? Hmm? Oh, yes. More or less. Uh, I haven't been really feeling up to it lately. I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, it, it's nothing, really. I'll, I'll live. After you. Your office is looking a little bare, Father. Why all the empty bookshelves? I, uh... I prefer to work from home these days. I had someone bring most of me things. I suppose helping your parish doesn't require you to be rooted to the church? No. Well, at least it's suddenly warmer in here. The priest sat behind a desk, facing slightly away from me and toward a crucifix hanging above the door. He locked his hands together as if to keep them occupied, but a bouncing leg betrayed his otherwise stoic disposition. I couldn't help but notice a large chest on the other side of the room. It looked new, and it too was sealed with a padlock. Is that... Yes, that's it. I suppose one can't be too careful. Especially when one leaves the church doors unlocked. Yes, it, it must have slipped my mind. But and with this quiet, you know, a uh, few troublemakers, as it were. He produced a single key from inside his pocket. I took it and immediately squatted by the chest. I was keen to assess the item and take my leave, if truth be told. I admit to feeling uncomfortable this far north, but Gorman's behaviour, combined with my own impatience, was beginning to make me downright irritable. I donned a pair of vinyl gloves and got to the task at hand. Inside lay a single item, somewhat large and bound in a thick fabric, which turned out to be an old picnic blanket. Hardly the proper protection for a supposed antique. I bit my tongue and decided not to chastise the man who was shifting uncomfortably behind me. Inside, of course, was the lantern. I immediately recognised it as originating in the late 14th century, and while I have seen a fair few before, this one was rather unique. Fascinating. Typical for the era, it was thin and rather lengthy. Carved into the brass, however, was an unusual collection of chevron stripes. Well, it's older than you think, Father. Easily early 15th century, perhaps even the 14th. Quite a remarkable design, actually. You say uh, that workmen came across this in the foundations of the church. Father Gorman? Oh, uh, sorry, yes. Uh, under the foundations. Uh, they found it while we attempted to strengthen the dilapidated wall at the east side. What must you do with that here? Excuse me? Uh, the lantern. You've seen it now. I, I thought you'd take it away to Coventry. You'll forgive a, a man's professional curiosity, surely. I can't make my preliminary observations so quickly now, can I? 
Did you reach any theories yourself? Oh, I'm not one for such things. Nonsense, your email implied some amateur research. <laughs> I was able to open the latch without risk of damage, only to find a fresh wick within clearly burnt at the edge. The Philistine had actually lighted the damn thing. Whenever I venture outside the realm of academia, it is not simply enough to get on and do my job. I find I have to devote a significant proportion of my time teaching people to respect history and the relics we come across. Surely even a religious man would know better than to light a flame inside an ancient lantern? Nevertheless, you knew enough to rethread the wick. It's as you implied, Professor. Curiosity, it gets the better of all of us. I... I suppose you did the right thing contacting someone anyway. <sighs> How did it look then in all its glory? I I'm sorry, Professor. I'm afraid we may have to stop for the day. I I'm afraid I'm suddenly feeling unwell. Hmm. I suppose you do look pale. You can leave me here. I'll be some time yet. There were some protests, but I was able to convince Gorman to allow me to stay for the remainder of the day. He charged me with the keys, and I made sure to lock the church doors after he left, lest I be disturbed. Now left to my own devices, I spent the next few hours meticulously cleaning the lantern, removing rust and debris and so forth. I documented my progress and would have sent photographs back to my colleagues were it not for the lack of a decent phone signal. Still, I had quite the prize to return with. The mere existence of the lantern was not remarkable in itself, however the geometric patterns were completely fascinating. It was coming to half five and the short day had long since gone. The lantern now looked pristine, and it suddenly dawned on me exactly how long I'd been attending to it. I'd gathered as much information as I could without proper resources, and now even my own stomach was conspiring against me. Still. There was one aspect I hadn't fully investigated. I was compelled to see the lantern in use, to see how the warped chevron patterns would cast. It was an almost primal instinct, or perhaps even a childish one, but I soon found myself searching the drawers of the desk until I found a box of matches. I stood back and surveyed the room around me. The flame burned with an intensity I hadn't expected. The light somehow overcame the confines of the casing and filled every corner of the room. The walls bathed in light and I dare say it was now brighter than it had been with the main light on. My awe was short-lived, however. I felt a sudden draft at the back of my neck and the flame began to flicker. Suddenly, I could smell the sea. The draft became an outright gust, causing the flame to dance within its casing. What on earth?
The lantern suddenly extinguished, and then there was silence. It was so absolute and so terrible I could not dare to move. It were as if a single movement might bring the dreadful sounds back. For the longest of moments all I could hear was my own heartbeat. And then I heard someone outside, in the churchyard. The presence of another abruptly brought me back to reality. Gone was my irrational fear, and returned was my confidence and rationality. No townsperson had any business lurking around the church at this time of night. Children, no doubt. I stepped out of the office and into the hall, listening. I'm sorry, the church is closed. No idea why you're calling at this hour anyway. As I took the position of authority, a great peace fell upon me. I was myself once again, and more importantly, I felt in control. And so I put the strange events behind me. My rational mind quickly explained them away as a mix of hunger, fatigue, and the infectious nervousness of Gorman. I was a scholar. I did not entertain such nonsense. I did not believe in the supernatural. I ensured everything was locked and felt the reassuring weight as my now full satchel patted against my leg. By this point, I was positively famished, although the food at the hotel left something to be desired. The only alternative was evidently the Anworth Arms, but alas, far too boisterous for my liking. I was alone on the streets, and were it not for the pub, I would have felt entirely isolated. And yet there was some noise around me. I half turned discreetly, but saw no sign of anyone. There it was again. Ever more aware of the cold, I nonetheless stopped this time and scrutinized the area intensely. Nothing. I was about to continue my way when I was finally able to locate the source as pebbles skipped down the sloping path toward me. Aha! Something was disturbing the debris on the rooftops. I walked backward onto the road to see what was causing such a thing. The street lamps were rather dim, and it was in fact the moonlight that allowed me to scan the rooftops. I could certainly see some form up there, too large to be a bird. When I squinted my eyes, I could almost see it. Whatever that thing was, it scrabbled onto the next rooftop further up the hill, and then it stopped. I took a few steps in order to follow it. Suddenly it grew in height, becoming quite erect and allowing its form to clearly be seen. Someone was on the roof. I now locked eyes on a hulking figure standing on the rooftop. With the moonlight behind its back, I was unable to make out any features, but I could tell that whoever it was, was looking right at me. The event was so unusual, so strange, that I felt paralyzed. 
I admit that I was gripped with fear. I, I could not stand to be in its gaze, nor could I bear to look away. I worried that if it were to move toward me, I may call out in a primal panic. It was the figure that moved first, as it slipped behind a chimney. As it disappeared, so too did my fear. My sense, strength, and rationale returned with each slowing beat of my heart. My head cleared and I was embarrassed, no, angry, that this figure, this man, had robbed me of my dignity. I walked quickly and lightly, my eyes ever watching the rooftops for signs of the prowler. The moonlight served me well, the glare on the rooftops was uninterrupted, be it by bird or by intruder. Nonetheless, I knew they must still be within earshot. Just what the hell do you think you're doing? Nothing to say, eh? I fixed my eyes on the rooftop on which he most logically could be, and I realized it was only a stone's throw away from the cherry tree. I was about to call again when something stopped me. This did not feel right in the slightest, and I most certainly did not wish to pass under that building, but indeed it was necessary. Instead, I turned a sharp corner away from the offending presence and made my way down to the stream, intending to follow it around to the other side of the castle and to my temporary abode. Thankfully, even my own footsteps were cushioned by the grass. Nonetheless, I still find myself glancing behind from time to time, almost expecting to see someone giving chase. What could they want, exactly? There was a moment of panic as I looked ahead and caught sight of someone approaching, only to relax as I spotted the Staffordshire Bull Terrier beside them. I offered a nervous smile as we passed, and my loop of the castle was almost complete. I arrived at the cherry tree, a little shaken. Upon closing the door behind me, I exhaled as if I'd been holding my breath the entire walk home. I made conversation with the manager, who kindly prepared me something to eat, I'd apparently missed dinner, and he granted me access to the hotel's Wi-Fi. As I sat in the empty restaurant, I composed an email to a colleague. In it, I described the bizarre antics of the day and attached a photo of the lantern. I glanced down at my satchel, the large shape of the lantern bulging at the seams. It pushed loose items held in the side pockets, and I noticed the book I had earlier discarded. Ah, yes. On ghosts and ghouls of the northeast. Highbrow reading indeed. I'm ashamed to admit that curiosity got the better of me. Soon I found the entry on Old Edgar's Lantern, which was listed as a Northumberland legend specific to Anworth. The book's language was abysmal, and it took three paragraphs simply to survive the preamble. However, it did hold some merit. It told the story of a lighthouse keeper in the 1700s named, plainly, Old Edgar. He was said to live a simple life, diligent in his duties and frequenter of the local establishments. It tells of a storm that batters the lighthouse so much that it is partially destroyed. Edgar, who can see a ship battling its way to the shore, panics and runs outside in a vain attempt to warn them. Without the lighthouse, the ship runs off course and heads straight for the rocks. Armed with his lantern, Edgar swings it above him in hysterical panic trying to get their attention. Of course, his efforts were fruitless and the ship crashed, killing all aboard. 
He was apparently never seen again, but some days later his lantern was found washed up on the shore. It is said that he who lights the lantern would call to the dead beneath the wreckage. Surely not. I left the book on the table. Surely the cleaner would want her scaremongering propaganda back. I settled my bill with the manager and mentioned the book's appearance, though he decided to play coy. The cleaner isn't in the habit of leaving books around, sir. Are you sure it isn't one of yours? I don't spend my time reading such things. <laughs> Except today. Quite. You could have paid your bill upon checkout, you know. In fact, I thought you'd already gone upstairs. Could have sworn I heard you in your room just now. No, I've been savouring every last bite after your kindness. I'm off to bed now, though. Would you please ensure I'm not disturbed before ten? You will not be disturbed, Mr. Troughton. Yes, thank you. To be fair to him, there was an abundance of footsteps upstairs. I even had to squeeze past a gentleman wrapped in a towel as he returned from the shared bathroom. The first thing I noticed about my room was that it was freezing. I quickly dashed to the window and closed it, clearly having left it open that morning. The air had a dampness to it, and the slightest hint of an odour. Were it not for my fatigue, I may have marched downstairs and requested a different room. For now, though, it was enough to take off my shoes and lie on the bed. Victorian doctors allegedly used to prescribe extended trips to the seaside for asthmatics and insomniacs. Indeed, I felt similar medicinal effects as I slipped into a slight snore before even falling completely asleep. I roused myself long enough to undress and get into bed. Quickly, I slipped into a deep and dreamless sleep. I awoke suddenly, whether it had been thirty minutes or three hours, I hadn't the slightest clue. I reached for my spectacles and noted immediately that the cupboard was wide open. And that's when I saw them. Two feet at the foot of the bed. Someone was sitting in the chair. Who is that? What are you doing in, in here? I waited for what felt like an eternity for an answer. Even with the moonlight shining across the foot of the bed, my eyes could not penetrate the darkness. All I could make out was the pair of boots, soggy, no, drenched in water. I could taste the salt, even. Thank you. I wasn't sure if those words had been spoken or whether they were created by the fevered state of my mind. As the thing leaned forward, its face, or, or what remained of it, entered the light. The skin was bloated, waterlogged even, and rotted in patches. The lips were so full that it could hardly speak intelligibly. But as it did, water spilled from its mouth and splattered down to the floor. You guided me from the sea, sir. Thank you. The word fear does not convey my feelings at this moment with any justice, nor does terror. Get out. You took too long, sir. 
We have lain at the bottom of the bay for an age. You took too long. Get out. Get out. Get out of my room. I was powerless to stop it, though with one hand I tried to push it away while the other fought the unnatural grip. Through my own fingers I could see its face begin to twitch and grimace with eagerness. Even through its warped features I could see the malevolence and I felt darkness descend on me. Mr. Charlton? Mr. Charlton, are you alright? Mr. Charlton? It's a trap and I'm coming in. <gasps> Mr. Troughton? <sighs> I was alone in the room when the manager burst in. A second or two later and he would have been too late. I'm told that I then fell unconscious and indeed my next memory is a paramedic shining a torch in my eyes. My account did not corroborate with the police's findings... My neck was without bruises, and the other guests only reported hearing my screams. In time, I withdrew my record of events to protect my dignity and, indeed, my reputation. I fought hard to be where I am now, and I cannot risk sounding like a child or the mad. But no one could explain why my sheets and the inside of the cupboard were drenched in seawater. And, of course why the lantern was nowhere to be found. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm.
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. So that was Leave a Light On For Me uh, by Mark Nixon, that's me. I'm joined by the entire cast, Mr. David Alt. Hello there. It's uh, very lovely to be here. So, yes, why are we here? What is Shadows at the Door? Shadows at the Door is a very small corner of the internet. Well, at least it started off as a very small corner. I would like to think it has since grown and evolved. It was a little place for me to start sharing some ghost stories I wrote for fun. We then expanded. We, we've had more people... Uh, provide stories for the website and a few years ago we were very kindly uh, backed by our kickstarter backers to produce our first anthology and of one of which was a audiobook produced by nine story studios and we the fans just kept saying that they want more audio stories so here we are excellent now when shadows at the door is um we've we've talked in the past about uh, ghost stories in general and uh, particular influences. Uh, do you have any particular influences that, that affect your writing at all? I think anyone who knows M.R. James will see that written all over that story. <laughs> yes. I think it's it's an homage, mm-hmm. David, mm-hmm. and I think that makes it okay to say it's an homage. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know. I just I think when you encounter someone who was the master of ghost stories, that there's not much else you can try to do to expand on that and who who am i to do it better than than monty james mm. uh, because we're, we're so close so i will refer course, to him as yeah. monty mm, mm. from here on out <laughs> uh, oh i also thought that was a good name for a dog when i get one. Oh yes yeah yes something very english like a corgi <laughs> monty the corgi or a beagle yes monty the beagle oh monty oh <laughs> i have to go out and get a dog now <laughs> <laughs> but yes i mean so his he has influenced so many. He is, um, a lot of people know him to be a very big influence on H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft, I believe, sent M.R. James some fan mail, and M.R. James was very unkind about it. Ah. But yeah, so a, a lot of my work is very Jamesian. Mm-hmm. Um, I take it as a compliment when it is described as Jamesian. Um, you might say I am a terrible thief, but... Oh. Uh, <laughs> what is it they say about not, there's not an original story out there? This is true. An imitation being the highest form of flattery. Indeed so. But yes. Um, now, Ghost Stories uh, is, a particu- is, is a very particular um, uh, niche in the, the grander world of fiction. Uh, I've loved Ghost Stories since I was a child. There, there's always just been something about it. I, I had a, a book, and in fact, I, I re- recently refound the book in uh, my mum's attic called Mad About Ghosts by a lady called Mary Danby, mm. which, which gave a, a, a nice introduction to all of the various different types of ghosts, and it gave some, some poetry and some short stories. And uh, yeah, I've, I've just always loved ghosts. Um, I lead the ghost walk around Ripon from, from time to time, which is the, the small city where I live. Um, uh, of which once I attended and heckled. Indeed so, indeed you did. And um, I've never actually seen a ghost. Mm-hmm. I'm one of these people that says, I have never seen any, seen them, but there are too many reports 
to dismiss them all as fantasy. Mm-hmm. So that's where I come from in terms of of ghosts and ghost stories i i just love the idea the the atmosphere um but it's something that i've not experienced myself do you hope to experience it i would i would love to mm-hmm. i'd like to think i'm very open-minded mm-hmm. um yes i'd love to see a ghost i would be very interested to 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 see one so, if anyone would like to don a bedsheet and come and knock on the doors of David's <laughs> lovely home in Ripon, I think he would very much appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ghosts, ghosts have always been there for me. Like, you know, it's it's that's my that's my bent when it comes to to horror. Um, mm-hmm. I'm partial to a zombie. Uh, I love a vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, not I, a vampire is not a vampire in particular. It's not like a you Twilight sure? thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, mm. I don't know Nosferatu. He has a look about him. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the, the the bald protruding forehead kind of. That's my yeah. type. Uh, ah, yeah, yes. my type. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but there's rules. There's rules for vampires and and yes. zombies and, mm-hmm. and and all these things. And and there isn't for ghosts. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's appeasing them, but it often doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And much like you, I I read uh, ghost stories as a child. I went to my local library and I'd start reading the children's ghost stories and then. When I finished those, I, I remember reading The Signalman by Charles Dickens when I was probably a bit too young to understand it. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was absolutely terrific. Mm. And there's no rules for ghosts. It's just, you can build atmosphere. You can, you can make it up as you go along. You can have a banshee or a grey lady, of which there's always a grey lady in all these nearby, <laughs> in all these towns. Yes. <laughs> um, in Durham, there is, the, there is the ghost of a piper under the bridge where there's now a, a dodgy nightclub. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm sure there's plenty of wailing that goes on of, of an evening. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, that's that's the love for me. It's it's the atmosphere. I mean, I think it's very hard to scare people in this day and age. Mm. And yes. if I were to provide you a very well written monster, it might be entertaining. Mm-hmm. Well, it would probably would be, but. Um, I think it's a lot better when you, as the reader, or in this case, the listener, fills in the gaps and mm. uses your own imagination. And that's what I love about the audio medium. Mm. The fact that, you, yes, in, it's, it's often been said that on TV or on film, everything is put there for you. But the best, the best horror, the best ghost stories happens in your own head because you are there filling in those blanks. Yeah. So, yes, I've always loved the audio medium. Mm-hmm. Um, from everything you've dabbled haven't you i I, yeah i've I've listened to a few things maybe given my voice to a couple of things but yeah not very it's it's something i yeah yeah just a a few things i don't think anyone's ever heard of of david yeah um yeah but the the audio medium is very much one that i've always enjoyed Mm -hmm. uh right from um childhood listening to tapes as it was Back in those days. Wow. Um, in fact, when I go around on the ghost walk and I, I talk about um, EVP, the electric voice phenomena, and, and tell the kids to ask their parent what a cassette tape is. <laughs> and, and some of them do actually turn to their parents and say, what's a cassette? Uh, it's scary how quickly time goes. Uh, but yeah, I, w- I used to listen to cassettes as a, as a child mm-hmm. and listen to stories. Um, and I think that's just stayed with me. I think you're, there's no better medium for ghost stories besides obviously mm. reading it in a in a in a lovely by the fire in, in a on a dark and stormy night. <laughs> but 
Yeah, and we're, we're hoping that uh, people will agree that ghost stories, uh, it's natural for them to come to the uh, to the audio dramas as well. Mm. And there are, of course, many places and people who do uh, a very good job of horror audio drama, but we are trying to specifically uh, introduce people to stories where atmosphere and crescendo are absolutely everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we will not linger too much on the monster, which I believe is the reason why Jaws and Alien were so effective. Yes. Because we rarely see the aforementioned creatures absolutely yes mm. and it's interesting what you say about uh, rules and things because uh, I think some of the best Doctor Who monsters are the ones that we haven't seen before because mm. we don't know the rules as you say vampires and zombies they have rules mm-hmm. and so you know with zombies it's going to be chop off the head mm-hmm. you know with vampires it's Etc. Etc. Seduce them. <laughs> Make them sparkle. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I think you're absolutely right about ghosts. And some of the some of the best films have have bent the ideas of ghosts. I'm just trying to think of the was it sinister with the uh, where. They had the there was the the ghost in the house. It was also in the films that or the photos oh, that, and things. Yeah, it was Ethan Hawke and mm, yeah. that that was that was horrifying because you thought in all of these haunted house um, films, you, you you're yelling at the at, at the TV saying, "Just move house, <laughs> just leave. Why are you staying there?" Yeah. Uh, and in this one, they did actually leave. Oh. Spoiler alert, um, and. And and you thought, yes, brilliant, they're finally doing mm-hmm. what we've wanted people to do yeah. <laughs> for so long. <laughs> um so yes, it's that it's it's those stories, the ones that, that break the rules or remake the rules mm-hmm. that have the power to scare, mm-hmm. uh that remove people from their comfort zone and and also tell a really good story at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about ghost stories I find is that they can be very formulaic. Yes. It's It's a trope of the genre. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, in a way, the comfort of knowing how the story is going to pan out, Mm -hmm. or at least for the most part, because there there may or may not be a twist at the end, but how, how it's going to pan out, where the relationships happen... It allows you to play more with the characters and get to know more about them and use the overall story as a as a vehicle for characters as well. And yeah. exploring relationships and exploring the human side of the story. I think that's a very good way to look at it. As in my writing, I particularly like to, uh, to torment characters who are rather well to do mm. as uh, Troughton as we've just heard in this story he's a very confident man very sure of where he is and it, it was quite nice to put him in in a, in a place where he wasn't he wasn't the authority in the room mm-hmm. and uh, maybe to remind him that he, he doesn't have authority over all aspects of his life mm-hmm. um, again that is a bit of a trope of the genre as well but it does mm-hmm. as, you, as you say it does allow us to uh, they're not just a device we can, we can explore mm-hmm. them a bit more exactly yeah and where, when you were writing Leave a Light On For Me, 
where did you get the ideas for uh, Troughton and for the vicar? And uh, who who did you draw? Um, <laughs> who did you draw upon? Uh, the vicar is well. This this the, the vicar. I'll start with. He's quite easy. He is based off a. Uh, I went to a Catholic school, uh, a Catholic infant school, and I, it, I think it was physically built into a church. We had a church literally a stone's throw away from the door and there was a father O'Gorman mm-hmm. he must be dead by now so I can say his name <laughs> he, must, he was ancient uh, so this is father Gorman mm-hmm. who's a step away from it um, there are some similarities to it that, you know, because Gorman is quite um, although he's quite young in this story mm-hmm. um, Troughton is a mix of every kind of academic <laughs> I, I could think of there is there's more to him he will Professor Troughton will return. Uh, he, he will come out, and there is a lot more to learn about him. But um, if I am honest, and I was saying this to you when we were talking about the performance, there's a bit of Richard Dawkins in him. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, you know, however you feel about uh, Professor Dawkins, uh, I thought he is a character. He is a, uh, he is a character. Oh, yes. Uh, there's a performance. So. Yes. yes. <laughs> that comes with him. And there is a lot of him in, in Troughton. Um, but... Um, I think I'm like, I'm like most writers. There's probably a little bit of me in Troughton as well, mm. so mm. Uh, that's probably why I enjoy tormenting him. <laughs> yes. And uh, the place where it's set, uh, we've I think we both know where it is. You've cracked the code. I have, yes. Um, mainly, mainly because I went up there. I thought, let's have a break in Northumberland. Mm-hmm. Where should we go? Oh, look, there's a haunted hotel. Yeah. In this small town, um, and so yeah. We went there for a weekend. Yeah, and uh, yeah, have you have you been there? I spend as much time in Northumberland as I can. Mm-hmm. I, I live in County Durham, which is obviously just immediately underneath it. And Northumberland's just—it's quite—it's just beautiful. It is. Uh, oh, it's gorgeous. And the towns all seem quite older. They're not as touched by. You know, there's there's probably still a WH Smith operating quite strongly. Uh, Woolworths. Or Woolworths, even. <laughs> for our American friends, yeah. uh, Woolworths have not been around for some time, but they were a staple of the 80s. Mm. Yeah, or mm. Possibly yeah. even the 90s. Even the 90s. I remember the one in Cambridge shut while I was there, so that would be the early 2000s. Actually, yes, yes, because I, rem- I have memories mm. of, of them as well. But... Um, um, the town of Anmouth is is very much. It's actually based off a place called Warkworth in uh, Northumberland. Uh, the layout is described very much like it, um, but it's also it also has uh, obviously fictional elements to it. Mm. But and the the churchyard and the uh, the gravestones where the sea air has eroded them comes very much from Whitby, right? Uh, which mm-hmm. any horror fan who has been anywhere in the north of England would hopefully have been to. Mm-hmm. Wonderful place, indeed. So mm. yes. So there's there's lots of elements into the writing there, and uh, yeah, with, without wanting to big up anything, I, th- I thought it was a very good story, and and oh, stop. yes, very Jamesian. Mm-hmm. Uh, because so what what is it about M R James that you particularly like for um, his writing? Hmm, I think it's just. If you ever sit down and read James, it's very much the voice of the narrator is present, and he can waffle on about absolutely nothing sometimes. Yes. And there can be very subtle jibes at Oxford mm-hmm. and and things such as that, and people who play golf, <laughs> and and people who explore academia when they're not qualified to do so, 
and all that. But um, but then he can slip a detail into the story that can become quite important later. And you've been so distracted by the waffle that you didn't realize it was there in plain mm. sight. And then he has created these absolutely terrifying uh, creatures and monsters. You know, sometimes it's referred to as a Jamesian wallop mm. when uh, the creature will come out, and uh, it really just sets the imagination going. I am convinced that. Although the concept of a bedsheet ghost was around from like, you know, Punch and Judy, mm. which James even refers to at one point, I'm convinced that the story, uh, A Whistle Now Come To You, My Lady, has completely popularized that. And that is the reason why mm. there's the sexy ghosts walking around in Halloween <laughs> with like fishnet stockings on underneath. <laughs> um, but uh, James, famously, um, having no time for sex in his stories, would have been probably terrified of a fishnet stocking <laughs> more than a ghost itself. <laughs> Yes, because um, a whistle and I come to you, my lad, is... is uh, and there was the other one that we were talking about earlier, about the wood carving. The mezzotint. The mezzotint. Mm-hmm. Um, both of those have the the protagonists finding something and then this thing coming after them. Mm-hmm. Um, or coming after something. Mm-hmm. And it's that, that slow build. that, that uh, And there's a, an inevitability... Yeah, about the the horror of James, which which you it, it's it's almost guttural. Yeah, in a way, because you know that something bad is going to happen. You can see it. Yeah, it, it's it's absolutely signposted that, mm-hmm. that this thing is coming after you, mm-hmm. and there is nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um. So yes, that's that's one thing I I appreciate about James's work and mm-hmm. I think that, that's also come into some of my writing as well um, when I did things about the advent calendar in the 12 days of Christmas it's very much signposting yes you know some, something bad's coming and at, everyone at the knows end. it except the protagonist yes mm-hmm. or even the protagonist does know it yes and, and is powerless to stop it in um, A Warning to the Curious by M.R. James um, as soon as this man has this crown, he's aware of someone mm. in his peripheral chasing him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, 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 I think we both discussed, we both saw the uh, the adaptation that the BBC did in the 70s of that story, mm-hmm. where there's just a, a blurry distance of a of a man in black just constantly running. Mm. And uh, what's, what's the line? He says, um, I know that, I don't know the line, but he says something like, I'm heavily paraphrasing, but he says, I know that he will never stop. Mm. And ultimately, the character tries to make amends by returning his crown. Mm-hmm. Um, but we shall not ruin that story. No, no, you indeed. Know. Yes. And of course, that that idea, that trope, has has gone forward into very recent um, films like It Follows, which um, it's generally acknowledged that It Follows is an adap- is, a, is an adaptation of Casting the Runes by Mr. James, mm-hmm. uh, except uh, with it not being Nordic runes, it is sex. Yes. Um, it follows is probably one of the best examples I would say mm-hmm. of, a, of a recent horror film um, also uh, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell is also oh yes it's also Casting the Runes as well mm-hmm. uh, but there are I, don't, I wouldn't say there are many films that are Jamesian but there are many films where uh, you know, as the themes that we've described are present in them I recently saw um, at the time of recording recently saw <laughs> Hereditary mm-hmm. um, which we will not discuss in too much detail because you mm-hmm. haven't seen it I haven't seen it yet no. yes don't tell me anything. No. Well, I, I, we'll Other stop than it's good. Yes. We'll stop now. <laughs> we will stop now. But again, there are there are moments in that of, of mm. dread. And um, also, uh, Nico has managed to capture that very well in the score for this episode as well, where um, mm. you know, uh, he's just gradually just upped the ante of the music, where it just becomes quite mm. unbearable. <laughs> um, 
we took we took some influence from The Dark Knight actually, because oh. um, if in, if you remember in that film, uh, I I don't know you're a Cambridge I, I, graduate. You've, am, have you yeah. seen a Batman movie? I, <laughs> Uh, Michael Keaton was my Batman. Oh dear! Yeah. <laughs> but, because... but yes, I have. Yes, yes. I've, I've seen the Dark Knight trilogy. I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased. Sorry, <laughs> but yes. Um, but obviously, there's like a there was like a high pitched noise whenever the Joker was doing it. It was just mm. becoming unbearable, and you'd want it to end. You'd want whatever he was going to do to happen. So mm. um, we often do uh, discuss influences with mm-hmm. Nico and what we like to put in music as well. Again, a homage. It's not ripping it off. It's it's. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing truly original out there. No, is there? Um, we we could edit this out. <laughs> yes. uh, we'll bring that to a close. Yes, the that. the the ending has inevitably crept up upon us. Yes. Uh, and is looming over our shoulders. And perhaps the audience wanted it to end terribly <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you for joining us for our our first story, and we hope to catch you again. Yes, indeed. See you next time. You've been listening to a Shadows at the Door production. Story by Mark Nixon. Performances by David Alt. Music by Nico Vertesi. Editing by Mark Nixon. Copyright held by Shadows at the Door Publishing. If you enjoyed this production, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you very soon. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.